One week ago, the most influential Japanese politician since maybe Emperor Hirohito was assassinated. Tonight, the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe shocked not just Japan, but the world. Shinzo Abe was killed while campaigning for his LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, which days later gained a supermajority in the Japanese parliament. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida pledged to continue working on Abe's legacy. I'll work on challenges that Abe could not solve on his own. The election win could be key in realizing Abe's ultimate vision for Japan. He wanted to make the Japanese state better at defending itself. He wanted to build a proper national security establishment. He wanted to lift the restrictions on what the Japanese military could do, both just to defend Japan, but then also to work in collaboration with the United States and with other countries. Shinzo Abe's call to arms coming up on Today Explained. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Today Explained, Sean Ramos' firm with Tobias Harris. Author of the iconoclast Shinzo Abe and the New Japan, which is the only English language biography of the late prime minister. Tobias is still in a bit of a state. Shock that I think I'm still working through, to be honest. The whole thing's extra shocking because Japan. Japan has some of the strictest gun control laws in the world. Unlike some countries, not a ton of guns. The suspect was quickly apprehended. Police say he used a homemade gun. And a little ironic, if we're being real, because Shinzo Abe's whole thing was beefing up Japan's military autonomy, which it lost after World War II. This hawkish former prime minister who wanted to militarize a conflict-averse country shot dead with a homemade gun by a former Japanese soldier. On the show today, we're going to try and understand why Shinzo Abe was so gung-ho on remilitarizing Japan and whether his death could ultimately secure his vision. What is becoming clear, what really has become clearer in the last few days is just how monumental and towering a figure he was in Japanese politics and around the world. Tobias is our guide. Globally, you know, he was, you know, an extremely activist prime minister, traveled the world, you know, 80-something trips over the course of his second premiership, constantly meeting with world leaders, constantly trying to raise Japan's profile on the world stage. It's an honor to have my friend, Prime Minister Abe, 
Japan, we have uh, many things to discuss. And the tributes that came in from around the world immediately after his death are just, I mean, just is a measure of you know, just how big his footprint was uh, globally. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi said he was shocked and saddened beyond words. India has declared one day of national mourning for Abe on the 9th of July as a mark of respect for the fallen statesman. No Japanese leader has matched, maybe ever, certainly not in a long time. What's his backstory? How did he come to power? With Abe, you have to start with his family. Both of his grandfathers were in politics. His maternal grandfather, Kishinobusuke, is the one who's certainly more famous. He uh, was a member of Tojo's wartime cabinet, including the cabinet that declared war on the United States, uh, wound up imprisoned as a suspected war criminal after the war, was not tried, returned to politics in the 1950s, became prime minister again. I mean, just this you know, really fascinating figure whose career spanned a lot of years. 18 years after Pearl Harbor, Premier Kishi, a one-time war criminal, links his country's future more closely with the United States. And he really bequeathed to his grandson this vision of removing these post-war restrictions, helping Japan reclaim its rightful place in the sun, so to speak. Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister of Japan. He very much got that from his grandfather. 1957, Nobusuke Kishi, my grandfather, standing right here, began his address by saying, it is because of our strong belief in democratic principles and ideals that Japan associates herself with the free nations of the world. But his father, Shintaro, was also a, a really um, important political figure in his own right. You know, faction leader in the 1980s, longtime foreign minister who Abe actually worked as a private secretary to during those years, and so kind of traveled the world and, and saw... Uh, from his father, how to succeed in personal diplomacy, and then also tragically died young, just before really he he was due to become prime minister. And so Abe enters politics two years after his father's death, inherits his seat, and is kind of helped along, is sort of sped along in his career because his father, you know, had so many people who were loyal to him and then wanted to pay favors to his son. And so Abe ended up speeding through a lot of kind of checkpoints and ends up becoming um, prime minister only 13 years after entering politics, which is very unusual. Yeah. And he admitted himself that he was not ready for it, that he hadn't had enough seasoning. He hadn't done enough of the jobs that would have prepared him to be prime minister. And his first premiership is just an absolute mess. I mean, it, it just, mm. you know, he relied on bad advisors he, his judgment wasn't good. I mean, he just, one thing after another, he ends up leading the LDP to a big electoral defeat. Unthinkably irresponsible. A dereliction of power. Government surrendered. All phrases used in the Japanese press after the surprise resignation of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. And in 2007, it looks like his career is over. Uh, resigns, also happened to, you know, be suffering from a, an attack of his chronic um, digestive ailment. And yet somehow, you know, over the next couple of years, returns to political activity, once again becomes sort of the leading conservative, 
reinvents himself as someone who had a, a, an economic plan for Japan. And by 2012, is back at the top of the LDP, becomes prime minister again, and really has an opportunity to, to put his vision for a new Japan forward. And what is that vision? The vision really is, uh, to, to a great extent, what he inherited from his grandfather. You know, this belief that post-war institutions, the constitution that the U.S. introduced during the occupation years, because of those institutions, Japan had been constrained from defending itself, from playing a fully active uh, role in the world uh, as a great power, um, from being a, a regional leader, from being a global leader on a number of different issues. Um, and some of it was institutional, that he felt that you know, the Japanese government, kind of pre-1993, power was too diffuse. You didn't have a strong executive. You didn't have a prime minister who could say, this is what I'm going to do, and then actually be able to follow through on it. Power was, there were way too many veto players. So part of it was just centralizing power, concentrating power in the hands of the prime minister. Some of it was just building new institutions that would enable the prime minister to make a foreign security policy as never before. And some of it was strengthening Japan's economy and, and finding a new growth model and, and finding a way out of long-term economic stagnation. By 2012, he had fixed that. He had a, a solid group of economic policy advisors and had a clearer sense that there was no way to talk about a stronger Japan. Japan is a great power again, you know, in the first rank of nations if Japan hadn't fixed its economic problems. So that was sort of the, the complete vision. Was that vision controversial in Japan? There were certainly parts of it. You know, for many Japanese, they look at what Abe called the post-war regime, not as something to be embarrassed about or something shameful or something that uh, prevented Japan from realizing some better version of itself. I mean, for a lot of a lot of Japanese, particularly those who came of age you know, during the war and immediately afterwards, they saw the institutions, the post-war institutions, as something that created a prosperous, peaceful, egalitarian society. They saw them as something genuinely good and worth defending. They saw the constitution that, yes, may have been introduced by U.S. occupation authorities. But even so, I mean, it, it became something Japanese people became attached to um, as something that made Japan unique, that made Japan special in the world. You know, that we have Article 9, you know, we have decided that, you know, war is not, uh, you know, as the, the text of the, of the constitution says, that war will not be an instrument of national policy, that this was something that set Japan apart and was worth defending. And so it was very controversial. I mean, pushing... Um, you know, saying that these institutions were outmoded or they were shameful or they were something that prevented Japan from being its, its best self. Um, that was not something that a lot of people agreed with. But now that he's dead, this, this dream, this vision of his is the closest it's ever been to being realized in, in modern Japanese history? Well, in many respects, it, is, it has been realized. You really did have reforms that really changed how the Japanese government worked. I mean, you now have a much stronger prime minister's office, a stronger cabinet. The national security reforms maybe are a little more um, controversial, but those two, the changes that he introduced and that other prime ministers in the last couple of decades have introduced, are also here to stay. I mean, you know, there, there's an acceptance that even if just to defend Japan, the military needs to be more capable, um, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of controversy around that. There might be more controversy, you know, if there were questions about Japan sending troops overseas to fight in wars overseas, but that seems less of an issue now. And it's much more about given 
the threats in its immediate vicinity, what does Japan have to do to defend itself? And also, how does it work more closely with the United States, Australia, and other countries to meet the security challenges in East Asia? More with Tobias in a minute on Today Explained. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Big improvements can make your past behavior look absolutely wild, says Mint Mobile, targeting all of us personally. And Mint Mobile wants to do that with your phone bill. Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. And in retrospect, you might feel a little silly about how much you were paying before. Plus, according to Mint Mobile, all of their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's biggest 5G network. You can get this new customer offer and your three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month by going to mintmobile.com explained. That's mintmobile.com explained. You can cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. $45 upfront payment required. Do the math. That's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower, above 40 gigabytes on this unlimited plan. And additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for those details. Support for Today Explained comes from Indeed. Hiring can be difficult. You can hope and pray and ruminate on how to find the perfect candidate, or you can turn to something more reliable, a smart piece of technology like Indeed's matching engine. According to Indeed, that matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences for job candidates, so it becomes more accurate over time. The more you use it, the better it gets. Indeed also lets you ditch some of the busy work, scheduling, screening, messaging. According to Indeed data, they have over 350 million global monthly visitors. They also did a survey that showed 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Listeners of Today Explained will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Today Explained. You can go to Indeed.com slash Today Explained. Let them know you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Today Explained. Terms and conditions do apply. Need to hire? Asks Indeed. You need Indeed. Today Explained, back with Tobias Harris, we've been talking about how Shinzo Abe wanted nothing more than to upend Japan's post-war structure. Tobias is going to remind us how that structure was put in place. So Japan is defeated in 1945. The total casualties were approximately 194,000. Accurate figures are unknown and difficult to obtain because of the... And the United States military arrives and establishes a occupation led by Douglas MacArthur. Let us pray that peace be now restored to the world and that God will preserve it always. Working under MacArthur were a number of 
young Americans, um, most of them not specialists on Japan, who really set about undertaking a pretty sweeping changes to how Japan's government and society function. As members of America's historic 7th Regiment of the 1st Cavalry Division enter Tokyo, with the precision of a well-oiled machine, the occupation rolls into the city. You know, starting with the Constitution and really um, strengthening Japanese democracy, uh, breaking up some of the industrial combinations that Americans believed contributed to the war, um, disarming the country. Demilitarization and democratization were the watchwords uh, at, at that time. And what, where it gets complicated, and I think, um, in, you know, in many ways, this is really the root of, kind of the long-term political conflict that Abe, when he enters politics, really is determined to resolve um, in his side's favor, is so for the first couple of years of the occupation, you have these liberalizing reforms um, introduced actually by, you know, veterans of the New Deal in the United States. Um, but then as the Cold War really begins to heat up, so to speak, the United States government starts looking at the world and seeing, well, a Japan that is fully disarmed, deindustrialized, that is essentially taken out of international politics. If we don't fix its economy, the communists are going to take advantage of that. The new agreement is a key factor in the defense of the Far East against the growing might of Red China. And so the Truman administration recognized that actually we're better off having Japan as an ally and rebuilding Japan as an ally. And what that meant in practice was that the liberalizing reform basically stopped. Some of the conservative politicians, businessmen, wartime leaders who were basically imprisoned and, and being tried you know, as war criminals um, ended up being released and making their way back into politics. And so you ended up this incomplete transformation. And as a result of that, you have this fundamental conflict about you know, what is post-war Japan? You know, is it this democratized, liberalizing place, or is it this place dominated by these old guard conservatives you know, who would prefer, you know, an alliance to the United States, but also would want Japan to resume the business of being a great power as soon as possible. And you end up with this, with these situations where you do have restraints, you know, the, you know, the constitution goes unchanged, but by 1954, Japan has self-defense forces again. Um, and of course, is hosting large numbers of U.S. forces. A very modern military force, some of the most advanced hardware in the world. This is Japan's self-defense force, strictly limited in how and where it can operate and despite the uniforms, these are technically civilians. This reality is controversial among the left, controversial among some elements of the right, but then you have this large mainstream consensus that this is okay, that Japan not being a full-fledged great power, and that in the meantime, Japan would focus on economic growth, reconstruction, recovery, and, and that was the status quo for basically the duration of the Cold War. What do Japan's defense capabilities look like from from the 1950s to present day. The best term used to describe Japan during this period is anti-militarist. Because of the Japanese constitution, we are not allowed to participate in uh, peace enforcement activities. It has armed forces, but they are not terribly sophisticated. They have equipment, you know, of course, lots of it bought from the United States, but um, you know, the different surfaces are disjointed. Um, they're just sort of scattered across the archipelago. Um, 
there is a strong, strong emphasis on civilian control. And what that means in practice is that there's essentially this very thick layer of civilian bureaucracy separating politicians from the military. So the military almost has very little interaction with political leadership. You know, you don't, you would, you really would not even think of the prime minister as commander in chief in the sense that we would think of a U.S. president as commander in chief, or even the Japanese prime minister now, in some ways, as commander in chief of the self-defense forces. You had, I mean, just taboos around the military. Self-defense forces personnel, when they were off base, would not wear their uniforms because people would yell at them and spit at them, and the term that was popular was calling them tax thieves. Wow. I mean, there there was a really thorough revulsion of the idea of military power. And so, you know, I think there was, you know, an acceptance of the fact that, okay, self-defense forces exist, but people didn't like it. And how has that changed in recent years? Over the last 30 years, certainly since Abe entered uh, entered politics in the early 90s, I mean, you know, a lot of those taboos have eroded. And and some of it is... um, you know, because the public has come to appreciate the self-defense forces for other reasons. The self-defense forces are really uh, capable at uh, disaster relief and recovery. I mean, not surprisingly, given Japan's propensity for earthquakes. And so they've, you know, they've been um, present in some of the big disasters the last few decades. And and I think that really has helped um, enhance their reputation. But there's also, I think, a realism uh, among the Japanese public that maybe even during the Cold War was not there, where Japanese have looked at North Korea's missiles and nuclear arsenal and, you know, are cognizant of the threat that that poses. Um, you know, they've, of course, more recently watched the rise of China and watched China's military power and are, are very aware of that. And I think the last and maybe other part of it is generational change. You know, I think for Japanese who grew up during the war, grew up immediately after the war, you know, that's a, a very visceral feeling about what war brings to a country and not wanting to see that again. Of course Japan should have a military rather than a self-defense force. They should be able to fight with full capacity to defend us and be as strong as armies in other nations. Younger Japanese do not have that visceral disgust at the idea of military power, uh, at the idea that Japan uh, should have the capabilities of defending itself from threats in its neighborhood. And that's a big change. And I think there's every sign that that's going to continue to be a permissive condition in the future for efforts to expand Japan's role um, in defending itself and also just in regional security more broadly. How is Japanese remilitarization viewed outside Japan in the region? It depends on where you, where you look in the region. Um, you know, I think in, you know, I think in Southeast Asia, um, you know, Japan has been a partner for a number of countries that have uh, territorial disputes with China and the South China Sea, um, has been quietly engaged in capacity building, you know, providing them with equipment, particularly with Coast Guard equipment. So, you know, generally benignly and in fact welcome, you know, and, and the fact that you're now seeing uh, maritime self-defense forces warships, you know, passing through the the South China Sea more, I think it's welcomed. I think certainly Taiwan would welcome a more uh, capable Japan that was more explicitly committed to come to Taiwan's aid. You know, of course, then you get to Northeast Asia and and, uh, the picture gets a lot cloudier. 
you know, South Koreans, there have been polls in recent years that show that South Koreans view Japan as one of the major military threats that South Korea faces. China, you know, of course, is going to look at changes to Japan's defense policy, changes to uh, the equipment it's acquiring, and will we'll accuse Japan of arms racing. But really, what's shocking, of course, is how long it's taken Japan really to enter the arms race that is, that's already going on in the region. So it's clearly a question of when and not if. So when this dream of Shinzo Abe, you know, to fully militarize Japan is realized, will that end up being his his most prominent legacy? I, I think you can make that argument, but even bigger than that. I mean, I think just given how much his efforts changed how the Japanese government works um, and that you have a Japanese government that is just able to respond to crises, conduct foreign policy, um, basically formulate a, a national security policy uh, in a much more coherent way and then actually execute it, um, that, that ultimately is going to be even bigger. That you, know, you have uh, you know, a, a Japanese government that looks out at the world in a more strategic way than it used to is determined to play a leadership role in ways that it could not in the past. That ultimately, I think, is going to be you know the legacy and and you know the fact that you know Abe after his death received as many tributes from world leaders as he did. You know, and, and President Biden ordering uh, flags flown at half mast you know to honor Abe. Um, you know, that's an extraordinary tribute to the ways in which he changed how Japan um, acts in the world. Tobias Harris, he's a senior fellow for Asia at the Center for American Progress, and he's the author of the iconoclast Shinzo Abe and the New Japan. Which is the only English language biography of the late prime minister. Our program today was produced by Halima Shah, edited by Matthew Collette, fact-checked by Laura Bullard, and engineered by Paul Mounsey. The rest of the Today Explained team includes my co-host, Noel King, Abishai Artsy, Hadi Mawagdi, Miles Bryan, Victoria Chamberlain, and Afim the Dream Shapiro. We had extra help this week from John Ahrens. Our audio fellow is Tori Dominguez. Our supervising producer is Amina Al-Sadi. Vox's VP of Audio is Liz Kelly Nelson. We use music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Noam Hassenfeld. We're on the radio in partnership with WNYC. Today Explained is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. 
Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.